Hi, I'm Issa Kwonga. And I'm Ryan Hunt. And we co-host Stadio, a football podcast on the Ring of Podcast Network. If you like soccer or football, make sure you search for Stadio, a football podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Peacock, presenting critically acclaimed originals for your Emmy consideration. Stream limited series Apples Never Fall, starring Annette Bening and Sam Neill, and The Tattooist of Auschwitz, based on the best-selling novel. Plus, TV movie Mr. Monk's Last Case and the semi-animated In the Know from Mike Judge and Zach Woods. Finally, head to the Highlands with Alan Cumming in the hit competition series The Traitors. Peacock is your consideration destination this Emmy season. From Academy Award winner Steven Zalian. This is what I do for a living. Top critics agree Netflix's Ripley is masterful, sumptuous, and suspenseful. He's a liar. It's his profession. I have no idea what you're talking about. Ripley is the finest thing TV has offered in many years. The Guardian gives it five stars and raves. Andrew Scott is absolutely spellbinding. For your Emmy consideration in all categories, including outstanding limited series, Ripley. I like the name. It is Thursday, January 18th. Saturday Night Live is back this weekend. They've got Jacob Elordi. I'm betting there will be a bathwater joke or 10 of them. If you're a listener of this show, you know SNL is one of my favorite topics. I've been a fan since I was a kid. It's a great industry story. The most successful launch pad for comedy stars in the history of entertainment. It's pretty insane that the same show with the same showrunner, Lauren Michaels, has managed to stay relevant coming up on its 50th season. Or at least semi-relevant. We'll get into that. The ratings this season have actually been pretty good since the return from the strike. It's been about averaging about four or five million, depending on the host and musical guest. But there's still this fascinating question lingering over the show. It's whether Lorne, who's now 79, will step down soon. And if so, what's going to happen to SNL? Who will replace him? And is he even replaceable? We haven't talked about SNL in a while on the show, but last weekend, Lauren went to the Emmys in LA. He was asked on the red carpet the succession question. He's always been pretty coy and astute to avoid talking about specific names, but here was his quote. Of course I thought about it, he told Entertainment Tonight. We're doing the 50th anniversary show in February, so I will definitely be there for that and definitely be there until then. Then we'll figure out what we're going to do. Then the host asked Lauren whether Tina Fey might replace him. And this is what he said. It could easily be Tina Fey, but there are a lot of other people who are there now. Okay, so what's Lauren actually thinking there? Was the Tina Fey drop a hint at what's to come? Could there be some other name? Is it Seth Meyers? Is it Michael Che? Is it Colin Jost? Is it someone we don't even know? Could be a lot of things. So I decided it's time for an SNL check-in. There's nobody better than James Andrew Miller for that. He's the co-author of Live from New York, the oral history of SNL. He did with Tom Shales and the updates to that book. And he did a season of his Origins podcast about the show. He's still very in the loop on what's going on at SNL and NBC in general. So today we've got Jim Miller on SNL Succession. From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellany, and this is The Town. Okay, we are here with James Andrew Miller, who is my go-to resource for SNL Intel. Uh, Welcome, Jim. Thanks for having me. Okay, so what do you make of the recent Lorne comments? I know he did not float Tina Fey's name on his own. He was asked by Nichelle Turner on the red carpet. Uh, But he's one of the savviest people 
I've ever encountered when it comes to media and the coverage of himself and his own shows. So him to say the words Tina Fey to this reporter, to me, says something. I wouldn't go too far with it. No. First of all, first of all, she brought Tina's name up. True. I think, you know, but I don't, we don't need to put this under a microscope. But if she had, hadn't brought Tina's name up and then he brought it up and it was the only name he brought up, then we might be reading tea leaves and say, well, that's significant because it would be a clear departure from anything he's said on a subject before. Mm-hmm. But remember, this whole conversation has been going on basically since the 40th. And there's always been this question of, A, will the show continue after Lauren leaves? B, if, he, if it does continue, who could, he, who would he trust to do it and who yep. could do it? Right. And so I feel like, you know, as much as I'd like to make the comments the other night significant, I, I just don't think they are. The Gail King interview in 2021 is where he said that he could see himself leaving after the 50th. I have talked to several people, and we actually did a show on this topic a year and a half ago, I believe, who have said that that's not necessarily the case, that Lauren has not decided whether he will step back after the February 2025 anniversary show. And that some of the names that had been floated previously, I had, you know, Michael Che was one of them who people liked internally. I have heard since that that may not be the case. Seth Myers would be kind of a dream candidate, but he still has his show. Uh, we don't know what's going on with that. Colin Jost is another one, although I've heard internally, maybe he's not the most organized person. He'd need to be paired with someone. Tina, to me, has made the most sense. Now, from sources that I have, There's been no outreach or talks with her representatives or anything about this. If there is some kind of a conversation going on, it's a private conversation. But we don't even know if Lauren is going to abdicate at some point. It might be a situation where he just kind of gradually allows people to do more. He's there, but he's not involved in recruiting or, you know, auditioning. He's not doing a lot of the things he used to do. And then all of a sudden, when Lauren is out of the picture, there's some person or team of people that can take over. So I think it's important to deconstruct what the word leaving means for Mm -hmm. Lauren. Because in the past several years, over the past several years, he has done some stepping back. Obviously, the most important parts of the week, he's still there for, and that's Monday night with the host and the and the staff and to kick it off then the ultimate Lauren moment which occurs between dress rehearsal and the show itself and deciding how the board is going to be organized what sketches are going to survive and what the order of their sketches are going to be so he hasn't given up the reins of those things but he doesn't come in as much but he's still inextricably attached to the show and he also without a doubt, has the final say on things. Could there be a time past the 50th where he becomes, I mean, I hate to use the word emeritus or whatever, but where he's still attached to the show, he's operating at 30,000 feet, there's somebody there that's doing, you know, laying the pipe and doing all the, the work during the week? Absolutely. But, you know, it's still, even if Lauren's going to be there, it's still a big job. And you also have to understand 
I mean, Lauren, aside from the five years when he wasn't at the show from 80 to 85, because he's been there for the whole run, he has the gravitas, the institutional memory, the history, everything else that Maple, and nobody, nobody's going to argue with him. Nobody's going to take him on. Oh, and that goes for people above him, too. I mean, everybody at NBC is sort of terrified of him in NBC Universal. Like, Mark Lazarus is technically his boss, but Mark Lazarus is, you know, a sports and direct-to-consumer and business guy. He's not a creative guy. I know Lauren has a great relationship with Donna Langley over at Universal, and she now has more power in television. I could see maybe the show going under her at some point. But this is a guy who, yeah, if they come to him and say, yeah, we need you to cut the budget of the show, he'd be like, okay, and then he just wouldn't do it. Well, wait a second. No. <laughs> that, look, remember something. Don Olmeyer cut the popcorn budget for the freaking show, and he got rid of Adam Sandler and Norm MacDonald and a couple other things. That Okay, Don but that was a different era, though. The networks themselves had more power. I, I believe that Lorne is such an institution there that they see him as untouchable at this moment. Well, regardless, my only point is that anyone else coming to the job is going to have not only a huge learning curve, because no matter how much you've been around the show, it's totally different when you're sitting in that chair. Mm-hmm. And the second thing is they're going to have to earn their respect and basically the loyalty, even if it's somebody like Tina, even if it's somebody like Seth, of everyone who's been there. And that could be formidable. Yeah. Lauren's also still producing. Kind of amazing. He's, you know, produced the Pete Davidson show, Bub Kiss. He just did Mean Girls with Tina Fey. He's got other films in the works. I mean, it's not like the heyday of the 90s where he was doing pumping out all those SNL movies for Paramount. But he's still active and doing stuff. And, you know, from everything I've heard on the show, he goes to table reads. He gives inputs. You know, he's it's not just having dinner with the host and bringing Paul McCartney by the show. It's like and he can make those calls that can get the guest star that they want or, you know, the, the walk on and the stuff that they lean on so much to make the show relevant. I think another dimension which often gets overlooked is Lauren is one of the best casting agents in the history of television. His instincts about people in roles. Look, Tina was not, she didn't come to SNL to be on air. I mean, he saw something in her. He developed that. He is very good about instincts with people and particularly in the entertainment area as well. So he's got Saturday Night Live and then he's got his two late night shows. He's got the shows you mentioned, his Broadway video, which is a multi-dimensional, multi-platform media company in and of itself. And he has liked doing that. I do think, though, that it's always been clear that SNL is job number one, the favorite child, whatever way you want to put it. And if he had X amount of oxygen in a given week, he would make sure that SNL was going to be taken care of. The dude is going to be 80, though. I mean, at the anniversary show. And time catches up to all of us. Some would argue that his age is apparent on the show. You know, there are way too many cast members now. They don't give these cast members the opportunity to break out like cast members once did because there just aren't as many opportunities as there were before. I mean, SNL has been in a tough spot with the political comedy because as much as they depended on the monoculture to generate the parodies and the other stuff that used to 
appeal to everybody, but now most people don't know what other people are into. The politics stuff is tough these days. You depended on shared media. People used to know what the country thought of the president. You know, Bill Clinton was chubby and a womanizer. Everyone knew that, whether you voted for him or not. You know, W. Bush was a simpleton, Nepo baby, and everyone could laugh at that. But now we're all in our own media bubbles. We're not exposed to negativity that we don't want to be exposed to. And SNL, which has always played down the middle, and Lawrence Genius has always been that he could do a show that was broad enough to bring in the Midwest and people who aren't politically savvy, but also appeal to the coasts. That's so much tougher now. And I think it does show in the product they are putting out. It's just less relevant. Let me play devil's advocate with you for a second. Sure. Because I think that it's baked into the DNA of SNL. And I think this was hugely important to Lauren, particularly during the first five seasons, that the show never pandered. The show never wanted to be liked. The show decided what they thought was cool and what they thought was funny, and they put it on the air. And then it became part of the zeitgeist then it became part of the national conversation. So I don't think that anyone sitting around at SNL, you know, they find that the crowded content universe is deleterious to what they're trying to do there. I think it's really, really tough for them to come up with great material. They're not, you know, you said that there was a big cast and they're not sitting around trying to like take cast members that they've hired and make sure that they don't become stars or make sure that they don't have a lot of visibility. I think that, you know, the most important thing that's going on in SNL now, and it's been going on since November of 1975, is that the best material needs to get on the air. And when that material is great, it gets noticed. Yeah, I don't know. I'm a little I'm a little more cynical about this. I think the comedy world has changed so much that the perspective of the current cast and the current writers is necessarily going to be more narrow. It's not going to be bright. It's just harder to be funny now for a mainstream audience. It just is. But think about how many comedians are keeping up with the culture and how many great shows, uh, comedies that are on the air, uh, not as many as there used to be, but there are funny people writing there are people in Hollywood writing funny stuff. I mean, the Shane Gillis situation is a perfect example of this. This is a guy who was hired and then fired from SNL in 2019 because he said some racist and homophobic things on his podcast. But a previous generation ago, this guy would have been hired on the show and he would have become a huge comedy star off SNL. Now he's like one of the biggest stand-up comics in the country probably going to have a great film career. And the culture has changed you know, for the better in many ways. But Lorne was right. Lorne was right about this guy's talent. He would have been a great SNL cast member. I guarantee you he'll be on the show before May. As a host? Yep. Interesting. Do you think he'd accept that, having been booted? Absolutely. It's a great monologue. If I'm Lorne, I am absolutely going to have that guy host before May. 
from Academy Award winner Steven Zalian. This is what I do for a living. Top critics agree Netflix's Ripley is masterful, sumptuous, and suspenseful. He's a liar. It's his profession. I have no idea what you're talking about. Ripley is the finest thing TV has offered in many years. The Guardian gives it five stars and raves Andrew Scott is absolutely spellbinding. For your Emmy consideration in all categories, including outstanding limited series, Ripley. I like the name. This episode is brought to you by Thomas's. Thomas's presents Technique with Tom. Slicing an English muffin with a butter blade? Boulder Dash. Just pull apart with your hands and marvel in the nooks and crannies splendor. For each one is unique like a snowflake. Thomas's. Huzzah! A toast to breakfast. But you know when things hit on SNL or when they don't and they fail miserably like the Stefanik sketch, then... The what sketch? Elise Stefanik, you know, the congressional... Oh, yeah. I mean, but take your pick of political stuff. The political stuff is just not funny. And then there will be something like the Emma Stone make your own kind of music sketch, the Mamas and the Papas things that she did with Chloe Trost. I mean, that was so funny and such a brilliant SNL classic sketch. It's hard to believe it's on the same show as some of those political sketches now. But my only point is, though, we knew about both of those. Both of those broke through whatever kind of yeah, you we're know. paying attention, though. I mean, I will say, the people who say SNL is not relevant anymore, I will say that the social media numbers do not lie. It is a monster on social media, and that is monetizable. They are making a decent amount of money with brand partners and all this stuff, and they have a plan for the 50th anniversary. They are going to blow it out with a bunch of different you know, documentaries. Oh, it's going to be the greatest reunion in TV history. Yeah, brand stuff, and they want to do stuff with the Olympics. Like, SNL is going to be in the public conversation in a way that it maybe hasn't been the last couple of years. Um, I think COVID was terrible for SNL. It was really tough. And they had to keep these huge casts because what if people went down? And Lauren has let people go off and make other shows. I mean, A.D. Bryant had a show on Hulu that was pitched, made, aired, and canceled all while she was on SNL concurrently, something that never would have been allowed before, but she went off and did Shrill and Lauren produced it. And then she was still on the show. So he's changed the the way the show operates a lot. I just feel like the relevance of the show has taken, it's taken a new form. There are people who watch SNL and never even see it on NBC. It's only consumed via TikTok and their Twitter feeds. Years and years and years ago, there were things that were baked into the show that could stand alone and weren't really designed for people who are sitting down and spending 90 minutes in front of the TV on a Saturday night. So I think they've made that adjustment pretty well. But I think that they're still, in, on a when things break out, there are still affiliates across the nation, TikTok, everything else. It gets picked up. Who's the last SNL star with a capital S? Bill Hader? Sudeikis? Arguably Pete Davidson as a celebrity. You know, his stand-up specials doing well on Netflix, but is anyone watching Bupkiss? And the people that the show has presented as stars, you know, I think Chloe Fineman is hilarious. And, you know, I think a generation ago, she would be everywhere and get a real shot of being a star. I hope she is. But she's now five seasons in on SNL. She's got to think about what the next step is for her. Heidi Gardner's in season seven. Colin Jost has been there 11 years. I mean, the fact that Keenan's on the show for 21 seasons, I mean, it's amazing. And, you know, there are like the show obviously thought that Bo and Yang is a star. I don't 
think that's the case. Lauren seems to be hot on this new cast member, uh, Marcelo Hernandez, I believe his name is. Um, I think he's funny, but like, we'll see if he's a star. It's just a, such a different environment now. And the, and the, the nature of stardom post SNL takes so many different and usually lesser forms. So that are, are you just, suggesting that the show doesn't have stars now because of the larger ecosystem involving comedy or are you because I don't believe it. I, I, I really believe that if the material is there and if somebody is really, really great, they're going to get noticed and they're going to get elevated. I think, you know, people know about Chloe, obviously, and but maybe not to the degree that they did about Kristen or others. But I still think that there's enough room in the world of comedy, particularly given the platform that SNL has for people to get noticed and to become bigger deals later on in their career. Oh, sure. I'm not saying that. It's, it is still, and this is the genius of Lauren, I think. It is still, after 50 years, the best launch pad for comedy start anywhere. I mean, there's nothing comparable. Arguably, TikTok and Instagram will overtake it because that's where you're seeing this next generation of stand-ups and people that are getting plucked. But there is still no better platform than SNL. And honestly, the fact that stars like Chalamet and Jacob Elordi and Emma Stone, the, the fact that they want to host SNL, there is still no better platform for promoting a movie than to host SNL. Even though the ratings are what they are, and even though the you know discussion and discourse around the show may not be um, what you know we grew up with, where you would go to school on Monday morning and everybody was talking about what happened on SNL, it's just different now. Wait, wait, wait. That was never constant either. One of the great traditions over the last, since SNL went on the air, was Dead from New York or the show is... Oh, I know. But that, that's I why mean, I, I don't even want to talk about whether the show is good or bad. Like, that's not really for us to decide. I'm talking about the objective barometers here, the ratings, the dollars. You know, the show is very expensive and the post-Lorne inheritor of this show is likely going to inherit budget cuts and a different type of expectation for the show because it is one of the most expensive shows in the live variety space. One of the tempting uh, examples or analogies might be Vanity Fair after Graydon Carter. Yeah, I think that sure. there was a you know huge, there was just a different financial paradigm. Yeah, and it could be successful on its own term. I don't know what the finances of Vanity Fair are now, but it's certainly diminished product and the aspirations are diminished. And it'll probably be that for SNL post Lorne. Do you think he is replaceable? No, I don't. You think that, you know, the supposed golden gut or whatever it is that has allowed SNL to remain in the culture, you think that will go away? Can the show go on? Absolutely. But I think if you really pay attention to all that Lauren does, finding the talent, being there and, you know, for sketches or deciding what the sketches are and the ultimate decision on hosts and what is on the show itself. He deals with the network. He deals with the hosts who need him directly. I mean, could Tina or Seth do that? I, yeah, probably. I, think they could. I don't even know whether Tina, I don't even know whether Tina want to do that there's a lot of stuff that lauren does that you know tina or seth may say let's get somebody else to do that but i think that lauren his instincts about casting for instance 
his ability done on my side to have the gravitas that he has with the network through the decades and to survive every single regime uh, you know, that they've thrown at him. I think that's very, very unique. And I don't think somebody's going to match that or operate at that same level. I don't think that, I don't think anybody would have the expectations that somebody would do it at that same level. It's just not going to be possible. Yeah. I think Seth actually makes a lot of sense because there will be a time pretty soon where the economics of a 1235 late night show on NBC don't make sense, uh, much as CBS has abandoned its 1235 traditional show and replaced it with At Midnight, which is much less expensive to produce. This will be a nice transition for Seth to come in and take over. I mean, there's no rules. Like, he could actually have a spot on the show. I mean, it sounds strange because obviously Lauren didn't do anything like that. But who knows, with somebody as um, multifaceted as uh, Seth, he may say, yeah, I'll give up my show, but I still want to have something and we can integrate it. So maybe it becomes like uh, another part of the kind of architecture of the show. Who knows? But it may be too much to say to Seth, you're never going to be on camera anymore. He's still a young guy. Yeah. Although Lauren manages to get himself on camera on the show a lot. <laughs> okay. So 50th anniversary show comes. I mean, it's not that far away. It's a year away now. By the way, is this going to be the toughest ticket in Hollywood history to get into that show? Have you already started uh, your machinations to get a ticket? Listen, the triage on the 40th was, you know, a rat fuck. I remember we did, a, we did a cover of Hollywood Reporter for the 40th anniversary, and we did a bunch of stories on it. And one of them was just like parsing who the invites are. I have heard SNL, they've already been trying to figure out who's going to sit where. And there was an overflow room. And then remember, Victoria Jackson was pissed off that she was in the overflow room and others from her era were not. I mean, the logistics on this, I feel awful for whoever is in charge of the seating arrangements. It's not a big room. It's absolutely the worst case scenario because you have there's no way you can make it bigger in terms of 8H. And yeah. everyone will know who's there and everyone will know who isn't. And then, of course, you also have to consider the fact that because the show is going to be so big and multidimensional and not just a show, you're going to be asking people to appear on camera, appear in sketches, do whatever. And then you're going to say, and by the way, uh, we don't have room for you in the main event. I mean, that's, that, that is very tough. So I'm going to put you on the spot. You give me your prediction on how this is going to play out, and I will give you mine. I think Lauren is going to go strong into the 50th. I would guess that he would be involved with the show, maybe uh, from a Meredith perspective uh, role uh, for a year or two afterwards. If I had to bet, I would bet on Seth. But I think Seth and Tina are the two obvious choices. And I think either one of them could do the job. But I don't see him literally, you know, like Mary Tyler Moore at the end of... Uh, that run, closing out, closing the lights. Actually, that's what he, 1980, shut off the lights and left and didn't come back till 85. And he couldn't so stay I away. I think there'll be a transition. Yeah. Okay. So your, your prediction is that there will be some kind of an announcement of someone who is coming on board to shadow and, you know, be his right-hand person. And then that transition will happen and he will be the emeritus. 
Yeah, they're not going to announce him as the as the him or her as the right hand person. They're going to say beginning in September of twenty five, or whenever it's going to be. Or you know, so and so will be taking over, but they'll be part of the show, woven into the fabric of the show. Well, you can't just do that with Seth Meyers or Tina Fey. If if they're working on the show, then the implicit message is they are the new Lorne when Lorne is gone. You know, you could up someone. You could say, oh, Steve Higgins is going to be doing more I don't think now. That's true. We could give him the show. I know Lauren will be there on Monday nights and he'll be there between dress and, you know, whatever. But Right. Uh, what I think is going to happen is something more like that, where Lauren will not be able to do the official transition. He cannot give this up and he will be forced essentially to bring in more helpers, have people do more and gradually take steps back. And unfortunately, I don't think that's the best for the show. I think the best for the show would be an official transition and him saying, you know, for the next 10 shows, Seth, Tina, whoever is going to be here transitioning over and come fall, I will be waiting for the phone call whenever they need my advice, but it's their show now. And the new era of SNL is starting. That would be best for the show. But I don't think that's going to happen. I just don't think he can do it. And then one day he'll be gone. And then we'll see what happens. He should be thinking about his legacy here. Like if he wants to set the show up to exist for 50 years after he's gone, then he should think about an heir apparent and naming someone. Matt, I think Lauren Michaels' legacy. Is of course. I'm, I'm talking about after Lauren. You know, does he want SNL to exist for 50 years after he's gone? in some form, whether we're watching on our Apple Vision Pros or wherever we're watching, does he want that? Or do you think he would prefer if he retired, died, whatever, and they said, you know what? This is the Lorne Michaels show. We're just going to kill it because it can't go on. I don't think he would want that, but I also feel like he is smart enough to understand that there's going to be a ton of business exigencies uh, you know, involved in making the decision about you know, whether... SNL goes on after him and, and what the network looks like and who owns it and what streaming is doing and all these other things. There could be permutations where it's just, you know, maybe a different kind of thing. But I just don't see anybody forcing, as you said, uh, Lauren into that situation. Yeah. I've heard Netflix wants a live sketch comedy show. I don't think they would do exactly what the SNL format is, but, you know, SNL hasn't had a real competitor in a long, long time. I've heard that too. And, and that's totally legitimate. And you kind of scratch your head and think, you know, why wouldn't somebody do that? Uh, you know, I mean, obviously there have been other attempts through the decades and they failed. But given Netflix's pocketbook, um, it's, it's totally a legitimate, legitimate, uh, you know, attempt on their part. You could argue that TikTok is an SNL competitor every day, but uh, that's a different thing. Or Instagram or YouTube. It's just, uh, it's a fascinating question. I don't know what's going to happen, really. I think I kind of have an idea, but I, I, I really don't. And I don't think anyone does. So we will see. Thank you very much, Jim. Thank you. All right, we are back with the call sheet. Craig, you excited for Sundance? You got your suitcase packed? You got your warm clothes ready? Yeah, I like Sundance. I love the idea of what Sundance is. I don't know if it's the same as it used to be, but I, I they, they actually sent out that list of like the top 10 all-time films selected by the filmmaking community. And it Oh, was yeah, like, those are good. 
it was like Whiplash and, and Reservoir Dogs and Get Out and Little Miss Sunshine and Memento. Yeah. They did not mention the thousands of unwatchable Sundance movies that, that I and others have sat through over the years. But yes, those were great. Do you feel like Sundance is not the same as it used to be? Oh, no, no, no. I mean, listen, it gets a lot of shit because it's almost some of these films are almost like parodies of Sundance films. It's all about like, you know, my trauma and my, you know, my coming out story and all these things. But you know what? It's always been that way. There's always been good stuff. There's always been bad stuff. I always, the, I think the docs are You're anti-trauma the... and anti-coming out stories? No, I'm record. not anti, but I, I just feel like <laughs> there are tropes that they often fall into. Sure. Um, but then you'll see something that's totally surprising and great. So it's, it's, it's hit and miss. The documentaries have the better percentage of good to bad, in my opinion. Uh, I'm more of a doc fan, but it's by far the most competitive doc festival in the world so they really have their pick of whatever they want this year is going to be interesting because some of the films that were you know about to be finished were not finished because of the strike they lowered the dramatic competition from 13 to 10 entries this year uh, i've heard people that are pretty doom and gloom about the market this year just because the toronto festival market for unsold movies was pretty bad but I'm actually going to go the other way on my prediction. I actually think that the market for Sundance movies is going to be pretty good this year. And the reason is, I think it's because a lot of these streamers and traditional studios are backing off of their own productions. You know, if you look at what Netflix is doing, they're making fewer movies. If you look at what Amazon is doing, they're looking at their budgets. And what it means is they might be more open to picking up a few more movies. Well, also, 2024 is going to be a really kind of a down year for the box office anyway. Movies That's are getting the other pushed. factor is yeah. that there are fewer releases on the calendar this year because the studios didn't get their movies done because of the strike. So there are holes. And if I'm a distribution executive and I'm looking at the calendar and I'm singing like, well, you know, late summer, fall, there's an opportunity here for a movie to do a number in theaters that might not have had that opportunity. So maybe there is a more commercial play at Sundance. I don't want to predict which movies are going to be the higher high sellers because, you know, having seen none of them, I don't know if I just going off pedigree, I think this Pedro Pascal movie called Freaky Tales, it's the half Nelson couple, uh, Ryan Fleck and Anna Bowden, uh, who did the first Captain Marvel they are great filmmakers and they have a history at Sundance. And I think that if I had to guess, that movie would probably be a big seller. There's a Soderbergh movie for sale. It's still the best place for independent film to get media attention. I mean, all the media goes. There's the talent lounges, you know, and that's that's sort of been drowned out by just the noise of the overall media ecosystem these days. It's harder to get attention, but it's still pretty good for small movies to get a big spotlight on them, even if they already have distribution. And then there's, the, you know, the fairy tale of bringing your movie to Sundance without a distributor and getting a big deal, though those are fewer and further between these days. But I do think the market's going to be up. I think people are clamoring for something to come out of this festival. And uh, I think that more importantly, you and I will have a good time. And hopefully our live podcast will be a success. Oh, it definitely will be. People are going to be clamoring to get inside away from I know, the hottest ticket. Yeah, The hottest ticket. Forget the Pedro Pascal movie. It's the live taping of the town that's going to be turning people away. 
Okay, that's the show for today. I want to thank my guest, Jim Miller. I want to thank producer Craig Horlbeck. I want to thank our editor, Jesse Lopez. And we will see you next week from Sundance. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.